I want to welcome you to the Plastic Couch Podcast. So today we are talking about caretaking, and there's a lot that goes into being a caretaker, and a lot of times it's a situation where things change for us. We go from being a kid who has our parents taking care of us to just the exact reverse when we are taking care of our parents. So Lisa and I have been friends forever since about the 10th grade, but I think that her story is so incredibly important to have everyone hear it because just the level of detail that we're going to get into is something that you don't have on television. You don't see in the movies and you definitely don't even hear it from your friends. You don't hear it from your loved ones. And as a matter of fact, a lot of what I heard today It was the first time that we have talked about it because that's what happens when you're caretaking. You're so caught up in taking care of everybody else that you don't even really spend time to reflect on how you are, how you feel, what you're missing out on, what your emotions are. And I really think it's important for all of us to hear what really goes on when you are taking care of somebody else with Alzheimer's. And for people who are having this experience right now, this is for you to feel seen and heard so that you really know that you are not alone in this world. Hey there, it's Kristen Crockett, and you are listening to The Plastic Couch, a podcast to help you find clarity and confidence in your life. Most of us remember someone from back in the day with a couch they kept covered with plastic. It was meant to protect and preserve the couch for tomorrow, but the plastic was hot and uncomfortable and it kept everyone from enjoying it. So what does the plastic represent for you in your life? Is it perfection, fear, or something else? And what are you preventing yourself from enjoying, or better yet, from being? I'm your host, Kristen Crockett, and I'm here to help you with the tools to get clarity on your path to you and to help you see what's on the other side of the plastic. So Lisa, it is so great to have you here. I want to welcome you to the Plastic Couch Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am now actually very excited to talk about this so that other people can learn from my experience. And there are a lot of good takeaways that I've really feel like I need to share with the world after what I went through with my mom for the past um, eight years. Yeah. So when you say that, you said now you're ready to talk about it. What is that difference for you? What makes it time for you right now? So I lost my mom in 2019 to Alzheimer's disease and it was extremely traumatic and it's taken almost two years to kind of unpack everything that we went through, talk about it, have me in a more healthy place than we were. It was a traumatic eight years that we went through. They call this disease the long goodbye, but people don't talk too much about the in-between that happens from the beginning to the end. And that's what I want to share. I'm finally ready to share that experience with others so that maybe it won't be so isolating for them as it was for me. Tell us the exact moment when you knew that something was just not quite right with your mom? It was a very unnerving one. My mom was taking care of my daughter. She was about four months old. She loved babies. She loved her grandchildren. But she had my daughter. My daughter liked a fever and she needed to take her to the doctor. So I made an appointment and I asked my mom to please bring her down to my house and then we would go together to the doctor. So she had to drive 70 miles to me but she'd done this route all the time. So there was no, you know, there was no thought that she couldn't bring my daughter down to me. The appointment was scheduled for four o'clock. Four o'clock came and went. I had not heard from my mom. I didn't know where she was. My dad hadn't seen her. We had no idea where she was. Five o'clock comes, six o'clock comes, and I still haven't heard from her. I'm panicking. I'm in tears. I'm upset. I I don't know what to do. I don't know if I can call the police. I don't know what I can truly do. I'm just praying, God, please make her use the phone and call me to let me know what's going on. I don't know if they had an accident. I don't know anything. All I know is that my mother and my baby girl are nowhere to be found. So what was popping in your head? Like, were you creating different scenarios? Like, tell us what was going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I had created a scenario where where both of them had died 
and it was just taking time to get the information to me. Um, I had turned on the television, I was, but then I was thinking, no, the news wouldn't have captured that fast. I just, I kept trying to call the house. My dad didn't know where anybody was. I was short of a very low key hysteria because I knew I had to keep it together so that I could process the next thing of what I needed to do to try to find them. But I was also slowly losing it inside. I don't know what I'm going to do if my mother and my daughter are dead right now. And so that's what was going through my mind all this time for a good two solid hours. So she finally called me at around like 630-ish and she's frantic. She, it sounds like she's been crying. Her nose is stuffy. She's panicked. And she was like, I don't, I just, I don't know where I am. So at this point in time, I am at least happy that I'm hearing from my mother and I know they're alive. So I can take on anything at this point in time. So now I'm able to be calm for her because she's hysterical. I was like, where are you? She's like, I don't know. I said, no problem. I said, look around and tell me what you see. Do you see any signs? She said, I don't know. I'm at a gas station right now. I said, do me a favor. Take your telephone and give it to the attendant and let me talk to that person. And that's what she did. And he said that it was a gas station in Ashland, Virginia, which was very far off the course of where she should have been. So when he said Ashland to me, that told me that not only did my mother never get on the proper road that she was supposed to be on in the first place, she took a very old route that we used to go to when I used to live in another city in Virginia. So all this time she's headed in the wrong direction. It's almost as if she remembered back to a time way before. Absolutely. Exactly it. I'd been living there for at least three years and she'd made that route, I don't know, at least once a month. So it wasn't uncommon for her to, you know, come down that route. I thanked the gentleman and then I told her, okay, you stay right there. I'm going to come down and pick you up. I'm driving for a little bit. It took me 45 minutes to get to her. That's Mm -hmm. how far off the route she was where she was supposed to be. And when I saw her, she was red in the face. She'd been crying. Her face was swollen. And she was so apologetic because she realized the impact of what happened. She was in charge of her granddaughter. And she was, for the first time, not in control of herself. Mm -hmm. And it scared her. And she didn't know what to think of it. I made sure that she could see that I wasn't mad. I was like, it's okay. I've already rescheduled the appointment. We'll go tomorrow. But all I need you to do is just just follow me to my house, okay? And we can talk, have a cup of tea. She and I love tea. And I knew tea would help calm her down. And it will also be a good segue for me to actually have a good conversation with her. Maybe she would open up and tell me how she'd been feeling. So that's what we did. We drove 45 minutes back to my house. And we got the baby settled. And then I made her a cup of tea. And then we sat and talked. My mother is a very, very private person. So talking about feelings is just was not up our our alley, but she did. She opened up to me and she was telling me that she, you know, she didn't really feel like herself, that um, she couldn't remember things. She was very frustrated. She was sad. She was a lot of things. I said, okay, I understand. Well, let's do this. Let's just start with making a doctor's appointment. I was prepared by a friend of mine because I was noticing some things with her, little small things, but I wasn't sure how to approach it. When all of this was going on Mm -hmm. and you finally saw your mother, Mm -hmm. what was that like for you? It was humbling because this strong heroine matriarch, I'm the only child, I'm looking at her and... I had so much love and sympathy for her because I just wanted to hold her and tell her that I was good. You know, we, we can get through this, but I, I just, I could feel her loneliness. I knew that she was scared. When I saw her, I just wanted to give her a huge hug. I wanted to just let her lay her head down on my lap and stroke her hair and tell her everything was going to be okay. But again, my mom is not a very, was not a very touchy-feely person, right? We did hugs, a kiss on the cheek, and that was about it. 
And I knew she was already uncomfortable from what she was feeling because she felt like she had failed, especially mm-hmm. to be responsible for her granddaughter and that she failed that. So what I wanted to do was make her feel okay. And I did the best that I could, but um, I, I just, it was so hard for me to figure out what it was that she needed, especially for the emotional support. I wish yeah. I could have done I don't know. I wish I could have done a lot more. It's, but, it's hard to do a lot more, though, because she had her guard up, too. I mean, this is a very proud woman also. Yeah. You know? and I was going to say it's, it's such a different thing because you are so used to being the child and being comforted. And now you have to do the reverse and comfort your mother. Absolutely. And again, you know, we didn't have much practice with that because my mom, I have seen my mom cry two times maybe in her life, two times. And so she always, you know, had this image to me, this very upstanding, this very prominent black woman that I looked up to, I I admire. It's my mom, this is my mom. So I'd never seen my mom ever not be able to do something. My mom could figure out a way for anything. One thing about my mom is that whenever I was with her, I always felt comfortable. I knew my mom was taking care of me and I knew I was taken care of. So that's what I wanted to pass on to her, but I, I don't know if it ever truly reached her. What I did do was I kind of told her, you know, the process of how things were and I kept her involved as much as possible. I told her, we're just gonna do a doctor's appointment to rule out stuff. We're gonna make sure that your diabetes is being managed well, that you don't have some kind of infection going on, that your kidneys are working, that you know, that you haven't had a stroke or mini stroke. We're going to do all those things to what they do for dementia to rule everything else out. Now, what I learned with this is that there are about, I think there are four or five different dementias and some of them have very telltale signs, but for Alzheimer's, it's more subjective with behaviors. You don't get a definitive diagnosis that your loved one has Alzheimer's disease until they've actually died and they've done an autopsy to actually look at their brain. Mm. And I did not realize that. So from the moment that your mom got lost with your daughter, tell us a little bit about how the disease progressed with your mom. So after that, my, my dad was still living at that time. Um, so let's say the disease for her started about 2009. Uh, for the next couple of years, my dad was her caretaker. I just didn't realize how much of a caretaker he was to her because they were still pretty private. He was also covering up for her. So um, for instance, I didn't realize that she was attending the memory disorder clinic at Georgetown University and that she was a patient of theirs. I had no idea. I also didn't realize that she was having difficulty with numbers, like she couldn't count change. So my dad took over those roles. Uh, he, he was the one who paid the bills. He did most of the driving. And so they were able to live their lives. Okay. I was in a, I was 70 miles away. So I really didn't have a good, good picture of what is truly going on in the household, which was kind of some managed chaos. But my dad passed in 2011 and that's when all the proverbial stuff hit the fan. So after he passed, I found stacks of letters and bills that hadn't been paid. I realized that she was not taking her medicine, even though it was in pill boxes and labeled, she wasn't taking it. She wasn't eating well. She had fallen down the steps one time. And some of it I understood as a grieving widow, but then the other stuff was just things that she should be doing that she wasn't. So let me ask this, what was the conversation like with you in terms of How was she able to hide her condition from you? You know, it's interesting. She was very defensive. And that's one of the signs also that a lot of uh, caregivers experience, one of the first ones. She was very defensive and very angry. So for instance, you know, not paying bills, she would just kind of shout at me, well, you know, well, fine, if you want to do it, then just do it. You do everything anyway. But that was her defense of being of a cry of being like, I don't know how to even open this mail, read what I need to and write a check. 
I don't understand any of those things to do. And so she would just laugh at me and I would absorb it. I would make sure the bills get paid and we would go on from there. But I started taking charge of a lot of stuff. I just stepped in, whether or not she was going to be angry at me or not, it didn't matter because I had to. I just went through papers and started contacting doctors. I made appointments. I went with her to those appointments to find out what was what. I got the right information I needed to so that I could be her power of attorney, her medical power of attorney, so that people could talk to me. Eventually, you lived with your mom. Life has a way of making everything just happen the way that it should. So tell us a little bit about how that happened for you in your decision to actually move down to Florida. You know, Kristen, it really, really does. Um, For us, it seemed like the most crazy path to get us where we were, but it was the most direct and best one. It was almost automatic, to be honest with you, Kristen. It was just like, okay, I got to get this done. I got to do this. I think I was like 35 years old. I had a baby girl and I had a two-year-old and I was working full time and I'm married. So I'm just, you know, I'm just doing what's functional, what I'm supposed to do. And that's so much to go through at 35 years old with all of those responsibilities. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we were just, we were blazing through them like, like warp speed. I don't know how to describe it, but I just wasn't, I wasn't equating any of the emotional stuff. I was just, I was at whatever cost, however long it took, whatever sleeplessness was happening, I was just getting things done. My job was 70 miles away. And so it wasn't enough just to come up on the weekends and stay with her, set things up and go because she wasn't taking a pill. She had fallen. She'd done all these things. All of a sudden I get fired from my job. I had a really crazy supervisor. She was just going through the staff and she had about fired everybody. I was the second to last to be fired. And for me, that's huge. Chris, I've never been fired from a job. I was like, me? I cross every T. I'm a great person. And that's the only time that's ever happened to me in my life. I've always been a good worker. I always bond with my patients. So yeah, that was a huge shocker to me. I was still in the, uh, the honeymoon phase of my job where, if, you know, if I do such a great job, you know, I can save the world. That's how I felt. I enjoyed what I did. So for me to be fired, it was huge. But if I was fired, it means that I didn't have to keep running back and forth to this job. It freed me up. So then it made me reorganize things. And what I realized was we had to move closer to each other so I could take care of her better. Now that takes us down here to Florida. My parents were snowbirds. They had a house down here and I had a house too, which was just two miles away from theirs. So it just made a lot more sense. I was trying to figure out, you know, my job situation and a recruiter called me, which is odd, but a recruiter called me asked if I was looking to relocate. And I said, yes. And this man was amazing. He got me a job in Florida and he set me up with housing. We packed up all our stuff. We had a moving sale and we went down to Florida. It enabled us to rehab the house where we were going to stay, pay for that, allow me to be able to take care of my mom to go back and forth easier and live. So my husband took care of the little ones during the day. My son, we were able to put in school. My daughter was still too young to go. I was working. He would take care of her and work on rehabbing the house. And my mom was okay during the day to be alone. I would go over in the morning, check on her. And then I would go to work and pick up the kids, bring them over there, and then um, check on her at home. And we would all eat dinner together at her house. And then I kind of get her tucked in for the night. I would do bath time with the kids over here. And then I would take them back home, tuck her in bed, set the alarm and go on about my business. All right. So that sounds like so much for you to deal with. So right now you're just listing it off like as a checklist. But let's talk emotionally what that was like for you to really truly have two households going at the same moment and really have the responsibility of two kids, a husband and your mother. And a job. And a job. And a job too. You know, I used the word functional earlier, Kristen, and that's what it was for me. I mean, I was, I, it was like I was taking, (laughs) I, I had some kind of energy drink in my system and this was just life. This is just what I had to do. 
And I just put one foot in front of the other and that's what we're doing. I didn't ever stop to think about what I was doing. But what I realized through time is that I no longer had the energy anymore and it wore me down. And I didn't take into context the emotional turmoil that it would have on my brain and my body by doing this over and over. Because keep in mind, she is continuing to deteriorate also. Eventually, fast forward through time, I had to move in with my mom. She'd been doing some really squirrely things. I tried to to troubleshoot the house as best as I could. I would turn off the oven and microwave during the day. I had found a caregiver that would come in and, and, you know, be able to help fix things for her, hot food, that kind of thing, and make sure she was drinking and make sure she was taking her pills. So that was helping me out. After we moved down here, I quickly realized that even though I was very functional with all this, I couldn't do it by myself. I was burning out very, very, very quickly. Because like you said, I, I ticked it off just like it was checklist to do, but you, you can't keep going at that speed for very long. And right. I found out quickly I needed to get help. And um, thank God, I just opened my mouth and started talking. I was able to find this amazing, beautiful caregiver. I adopted her as, as my second mom after my mom passed, but she came and she would help me out. And it started where she would just come in about an hour, twice a day, she would make sure my mom got breakfast and took her pills. And then she'd come back around two o'clock to make sure she had eaten lunch and, you know, was still doing okay in the home. And um, then I would come home and take over from there. And we were doing that cycle for maybe a couple of years. And then things just got worse. The one thing that made me move in with her was there was this horrible smell in the house. It was a burned metallic smell. And I was like, oh my gosh, what happened? And I look in the kitchen and she had tried to cook a meal in a metal skillet by sticking it in the microwave mm. and turned it on. Oof. And it was, I mean, every, every scenario ran through my mind, the microwave blowing up, the house burning down, her getting trapped in, but it didn't. And I said, okay, it's time to move in. And so that's what we did. My husband and my two little kids and I moved into her home. Now, that was also an adjustment too, because what I realized now is that I never talked to my family about doing these things. I just kept blazing forward. And my husband was great enough to keep going along with everything because I never asked his opinion about stuff. But I mean, it was always family first. Mom was family. So this is what we have to do for her. It's not that he would have said no. It's just that I never heard his emotion and never heard his voice with the decisions that I made. So in retrospect, we were able to talk about it after she passed and we were kind of breaking down all the things that happened. But in retrospect, yes, I absolutely should have included him a lot of the decisions that I made, but he was loving enough to go along with them. So you say that he was loving enough to go along with it, but what is the toll that it kind of took on you all's relationship? Oh, uh, <laughs> A huge toll. I mean, we weren't even, if you can imagine, I was a frenzied, anxious, depressed person who didn't even know what she needed. And my husband was forced to make all these changes that he may or may not have wanted to and had to go along with it and had to adjust to life in another state, had the burden of not really having a wife anymore. I mean, I was, I, I, I was, I was a wreck. I was a wreck. I didn't sleep. I ate too much. I had poor coping skills. I probably drank too much. I had to take Benadryl to go to sleep. It was rare that I got six hours a night. It was it was extremely tough on our relationship. And what I realized, it was challenging. He didn't know what emotional support to give me because he was hurting himself. And it was hard. He didn't have his wife. And I understand that a lot more now. It was a hard place for both of us because I wanted him to be able to take care of me, to know what I needed. And I didn't even understand and know that. So he definitely didn't. So it was such a horrible period of poor communication, 
not understanding each other's love languages, not being able to provide either one of us what we needed, and neither one of us being a priority in each other's lives. I mean, the hierarchy of who was taken care of, who got taken care of in the house, was always my mother first, always my mom first. Next came the kids. And then next came the dogs, actually. We had animals because they squawked loud enough. Then him, then me. So I'm what, fifth, sixth on the list? Yeah. If I even got my needs met, and essentially pretty much they weren't. It was a very, very isolating, depressing time. So you were the one person that I talked to about everything. And what I realized is it was a lot. It was a lot to unpack all the time. My situation wasn't going to change anytime soon, but you were able to just talk me through some of the, the really low points and also the regular points. I remember there was one time my son, <laughs> I was hysterical and you actually had to calm me down, but my son was playing um, little league basketball and there were only four kids on his team and he needed to be there so that they could play this championship game. If he did not show up, they were going to lose by default because they just didn't have enough players. So the pressure's on, right? And the night before, my mom just had a bad night. She was up every couple of hours. She was trying to find weird places to go to the bathroom. She wouldn't go to sleep. She was just, it was just up and down, up and down, up and down all night. I didn't settle in until five o'clock. I overslept my alarm and I woke up in this horrible panic. I got him ready. I got my daughter ready as fast as I could. I think she was just in her pajamas and we ran, we drove over to the school really fast. And I sent him and I was like, run, 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 see if you can make the game. And he came back out and he said, mommy, everybody was gone. And mm. I lost it. I lost it because I had let so many other people down because I couldn't get my stuff together. And actually it was more than that, right? I was just overstressed. I was, yeah. I was, I had too much to, I had too much on my plate. Yes, and it's so much. And it's like, once you get to a place where your cup has been overflowing for now years, yes. then it's like, yes. how can you possibly expect to function as somebody who is remembering the things that you should remember? I was expecting myself to do that. I mean, this is, this is let me give you how my day looked. This is what happens. I wake up in the morning. I had to get the kids ready. I had to do my daughter's hair. I had to drop them off at school. I have to run 25 minutes to work. I work my six-hour schedule. Very, very hectic. I'm running back and forth to treat my patients because I got to leave. I had it to the minute. I had to leave by 2.27 that day so that I could run back across town to pick them up from school before they went to aftercare because I couldn't afford for them to stay in aftercare because it was expensive. And I had to make this horrible deadline every day after I picked the, them up. What was the, what was the charge if you, if you were late one minute? It was $15 per hour per child. So that was $30 if they actually got signed into aftercare. And I remember one day a friend of mine, one of the teachers saw me racing in there. I was hysterical. And I realized I can't even imagine how I looked at some people all the time, but I was like doubled over and I was crying because they had already gone to aftercare. One child was in one side of the school. The other child was on the other side of the school. And I couldn't make it to both to get them before they got signed in for this $30 penalty. And it, I, I, she took me to the side and she's like, listen, I will help you. I will pull them to the side of my classroom until you get ready. She's like, what is, what's wrong? And I realized that my reactions were so hyper to the situations because I was so ill-equipped to deal with any of this. I mean, after I picked them up, now I go home and then I deal with whatever else my mom has been able to get herself into. My caregiver left at three. So that kind of 30 minute time, my mother could do anything. So it, I might come home and I might smell the fresh smell of feces which meant that I have got to clean a bathroom and her and everything else before I can even sit down and work on homework or start making a meal. One day she greeted me holding a branch with a snake on the end of it. I was like, oh, oh my good Lord. 
so that's when I realized that actually I had to employ my caregiver a little bit more time. So there was, you know, very little lag time between the time that she was with her and I was home. I also had to set alarms so that I knew that, you know, she couldn't get out the house. That's another thing I had to trick her to stay inside. There were so many little tricks that I did in the house to keep her safe. Um, one of them was replacing the front foyer rug with a dark one because then it would look more like a hole to her and she would avoid it. That's another little sensory, uh, visual sensory trick I used to do. Um, another thing that I would do is I had to change the deadbolt inside to a keyed one so that my caregiver would lock it from her side and then she wouldn't be able to get out. Now that could also be dangerous, but I was walking right in after her. After I picked them up from school, I'd bring them home. I would take care of whatever my mother needed at the time, right when we walked in the door. That could be anything. That could be cleaning her up. It could be- Because um, she had a colostomy bag as well. My mother had a colostomy bag and sometimes she would pull it off. And if I opened that door and the smell of feces would hit me right when I walked in, then I would just know that I would have to take care of that first. That's the thing. My mom always came first. I mean, the kids haven't had their snack. They haven't, I would have to take care of that. So she could have feces on her that had tracked through the hallway that were all over the bathroom where she tried to clean herself. I would, I would just cry. I would cry while I was cleaning her up. I would cry while I was bleaching the bathroom down. I would cry while I was reapplying all her things because now we got to do a whole shower. So I would get her settled back in the back and then I'd get the kids a snack, get them settled up with whatever they needed to do, get them comfortable, didn't want to scare them or anything. And then I'd go back to her and I'd start cleaning. I'd, I'd have to clean the, the, the floors, the walls, her, take her clothes off. I had to reapply all of the flanges and everything for the bags. I needed to shower her, give her good washing, get her situated with new clothes. And then I had to go do dinner and then we had to do homework and then we had to go do bath time and then we had to do medications. And, you know, as things got more intense for my mom, she had to be fed. And so I had to puree her food and I had to feed her. And, you know, the kids are getting a little older now and they're getting a little more responsible. So they're not as dependent upon me for stuff. And sometimes they would actually help me feed her. Sometimes they would help me um, fix her food also. But, you know, it was a hell of a schedule for a very long time. And I mean, sometimes we had to squeeze doctor appointments in there. So I'm literally running in like I have fire behind me and I'm getting her ready and then I'm, I'm getting her out the door and, and we're running to the last appointment of the day and they're checking her out, you know, for the same thing. It's, there's nothing that they can say. Believe it or not, she was healthy. She had, her heart was fine. Her lungs were fine. Her diabetes was every, she was very well taken care of. She was very good, except the dementia was eating her brain. I had a friend who said to me, you have no idea what it is like to change someone's diapers three yeah. times, at least a day. Yeah. And I think that's what we're not understanding is that just hearing I'm taking care of my parents versus really knowing that every single aspect you have to manage just like a newborn Correct. but in addition to you sometimes experiencing that person not seeing you as their child anymore Correct. that you are completely changing the dynamics of the relationship and that those dynamics can ebb and flow and change. And sometimes they remember and sometimes they don't. And sometimes they're mm -hmm. lucid and sometimes they're not. Mm -hmm. And you still have to go to work and take care of your loved ones on top of all of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's exhausting. It's, it's loving. It's a testament of, of life. It's, it's everything. But the truth of the matter is, it is very exhausting. And as humans, I think there's an amount that we can and we can't manage. And I think the limits for what we can't manage are always tread upon when you are caregiving. And that's tough. You don't have boundaries that are set up anymore. All those boundaries are, they're gone. 
you have to do what you have to do. And that's just the reality of your life. The very first moment when your mom did not remember who you were, what was that like for you? Oh, that was surreal. That was a, that was a gut, that was a sucker gut punch. That was a hard day. I remember that. That was one of the days I was, I was in a rush. I had to take her to a doctor's appointment. So I'd gotten the kids, I'd run in. My caregiver had her all ready and dressed to go. All she needed to do was come out the door with me. I, I called to her, I, I checked her out and I walked down the hallway. I'm expecting her to follow me and she doesn't come. So I call her, I say, mom, come on. And she, I don't hear anything. She's not coming. I call her one more time, mom, come on nothing. I go back there. I said, mom, let's go. And she looks at me full of attitude. (laughs) And she said, who's mom? I said, oh, I said, that's not you. She said, no, I'm not mom. I said, well, who are you Joyce then? She said, yeah, I'm, I'm Joyce. I said, okay. All right, Joyce. Well, let's go. And then she went. And that was the moment that she was no longer a mother. She had forgotten that she was a mom. And that's the thing about this disease that was kind of, that was like, for me, I'm my mother's only child. And this disease has literally erased the memory of me being in existence. She didn't remember any, she didn't remember birthdays. I would include her and stuff. She had no idea what any of that stuff was for. In fact, she didn't really know who I was. I wore scrubs when I went to work. And she, she would pat me on the shoulder and tell me that I was a really nice nurse. But she would look at my daughter, who was like my fitting image when I was a little girl. And she said, no, that's my little girl right there. And it was, it was sweet, right? She could see me at that age with this older, you know, what am I, like, I don't know, 40-year-old woman in front of her. You know, she, she has no idea who I am. But at least she knew that I was nice, <laughs> At least she she could feel that energy coming from me. And, you know, that was one thing as my mom continued to, you know, get worse over time, that she always kept at the front of her home. The first first couple of years were were rough because she wasn't very sweet at all, at all. You know, it's funny, Lisa, because a lot of times people don't truly understand what taking care of somebody with Alzheimer's is really like. Like, I remember being out with a friend and we were having a drink and she was like, I cannot believe that they put my grandmother in a home. And I thought about your experience and I had to kind of explain to her the other side of things because people don't necessarily understand that Alzheimer's is not cotton candy and puppy dogs. Oh, no, 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 no. No, it's not. I mean, that's the thing that I want to convey to people. I remember when I was five years old, they, it was a mantra for them. Don't you ever put us in a nursing home. And that was a curse as well as an instruction, but it was a curse too, because we were broken. We were broken by the time we were finished taking care of my mom. I would do the same thing again. I would have still kept her at home the whole time, but it was not easy at all. It was not easy at all. And I never judged anybody for doing any different. Now, see, I worked in a nursing home, too, as a physical therapist. And I saw a lot of the stuff that happens in nursing homes that I would constantly remind me of why my mother was never there. Um, so whether or not you call it control or love or whatever, you know, no, I, I kept her home. As hard as it was, I kept her home. As deteriorating and depressing as it was, she stayed home. We, I, I loved her. And that's the thing with this disease is that they, there was always two emotions that I had. It was guilt and depression, or maybe three emotions, guilt, depression, and love. They were always there. They were always stayed with me. You know, you feel guilty that you have the emotions that you do, and then you're depressed as you're going through them. I mean, the sad thing is a lot of people realize you're essentially kind of waiting for them to die. You are watching them deteriorate little bit by little bit in front of you because you are waiting for them to die. She lived a really healthy 11 years. When she passed, there was nothing wrong with her, but her body shut down. Her brain literally just started breaking down where it wouldn't tell her to breathe anymore. That's what happens. It just does that. It just does that. 
one thing that I had, um, I'm sorry, Kristen, you may want to ask a question. No, don't be sorry sorry at all. You got me up here crying too. And I actually remember watching Oprah one day and calling you and saying, oh my gosh, I saw the most lovely thing where this mom, (laughs) this, this daughter was like, oh, I get to take care of my mom. I'm so lucky. (laughs) And you were like, yeah, um, it's not how I feel right now. And it's, it's, (laughs) and it's one of those things looking back that when we don't absolutely share because now I know so much more but I think at the time it was a process for you to get comfortable with sharing what you were going through you really just did it you just did it and that was it and you didn't it was almost like you didn't even really complain about it but when you don't complain when you don't talk about it it only impacts you inside like you get broken down physically emotionally mentally all of that and so now I understand That there are no, every experience for someone with Alzheimer's is different. You have people who are fighting, who are, you know, really fighting their caretakers. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have people who really just can't talk anymore. You have so many different components and different levels of it and different scenarios. And I think it's important for people to realize that it is not a one size fits all disease. No, it's not. And I've heard of really, really bad stories of where sexual abuse going on and it was a manifestation of the disease. Sometimes the, the areas of the brain that start to deteriorate are the ones that kind of keep your, you know, keep certain things in check, like the frontal lobe. And, you know, you had families that were existing in this hell and silence because, you know, dad is touching people. And the truth of the matter is sometimes the disease affects everybody different. Those things Mm -hmm. that should be checking things aren't happening anymore. I didn't have that situation with my mom. My mom actually turned into just being this very, very, very sweet person. She loved hugs. She um, would give me kisses or she would accept them. She was a happier person the worse off she was. She really, really was. Um, And I, I don't know about, I don't know if happy is the right word to use, but she was pleasant. She was not aggressive. She was not cursing. She was not spitting. She was not, you know, doing anything like that. She was just a sweet lady. You know, one thing that she would always say, she started losing her ability to um, speak and eventually she became nonverbal. But she would always say, thank you. Thank you was her, I love you. Thank you was her, thank you. Thank you was everything. And she was still, every now and then it would come out. Every now and then it would come out. You know, Kristen, one thing about I can be stubborn, right? And I think some of my stubbornness just kept kept me going through stuff. I wasn't going to give up no matter what. And the truth of the matter is it took such a toll on my my brain, my, my mental health. I remember going to the doctor to, you know, try and get something for my depression. Um, I tried it. It just made me sleep for the first two weeks. It made it worse because I was sleepy trying to get through everything and I didn't notice anything. So I just stopped taking the drugs. It hit me that, you know, my situation is is situational. This depression isn't going to stop until you're not doing what you're doing anymore. And there's Mm -hmm. no pill in the world that's ever going to fix that. So I just kind of hung in there. Now I had some coping strategies that weren't the greatest. I would drink wine every night to go to sleep, to relax myself at the end of it. I mean, you know, after that heavy, hectic schedule, it'd be late at night when the house was quiet, when I could just be. That's when I would have a glass of wine or two to just chill and settle until, you know, the next wave of anything else was going to hit. I'd try and go to bed. And even in going to bed, you still had moments, you know, where she was getting up in the middle of the night. I know you had purchased alarms to, uh, to notify you if she was getting out of the bed. So even when she went to bed, there still was no rest for you. There was that you're exactly right. There wasn't. So another thing that was off was her sleep schedule. She wasn't sleeping as she should. I mean, (laughs) that's another thing that happens with a lot of, um, seniors and even Alzheimer's is that their sleep schedule is just off. 
she would have the urge to go to the bathroom. She didn't know where the bathroom was, so she would try and urinate in odd places. I tried my best to try and, you know, do what I could. I had alarms on the bed. I had a perimeter alarm. I had a bed alarm, one that would activate by pressure. So if she stood up, it would beep loudly, and then I could get up and, and, you know, help her to whatever she needed to do. I used to put a bedside commode at the bedside to see if she would use it, and she would just walk around it and urinate on the sofa, <laughs> which I would have to then wash and scrub and dry and, you know, just a whole whole lot of things. Um, she was wearing Depends. And pe- it, was, it, was, it was a lot that we were always, always doing. And so my mom has been up three, four times. I've been up with her, and I've been to the bathroom with her, and I've wiped her, and I've cleaned her, and I've changed her pads and her panties. And I have walked her back to the bed just to do it another two hours later because she got back up again. And fast forward, it's 6 a.m. I got to get up and go to work. What do you want managers to know about people that are caretakers of parents or loved ones with Alzheimer's? I want them to have sympathy, to have flexible schedules for caregivers. I really do. I was grateful that I worked part-time. I mean, I worked a lot of hours, but it wasn't enough to be full-time, but it was just on the edge of being part-time. And that was good for me. And I was able to keep that, but that wasn't for everybody. After I moved here, I had some of the best supervisors ever because they were very sympathetic for me. But I was also a very good worker. And I just, I never let it, I still went to work. I, I may have had a couple of hours sleep, but I still went. I, I, I always felt like I did not have a choice. I think flexibility is so important because there's a term called the sandwich generation, which describes people of my age doing what I did. So you're in between taking care of a young family, your young kids, and taking care of an elderly parent at the same time. So you get sandwiched in between. And it is hard. If you can imagine all the responsibilities that you have to you know, to, to do for school or, you know, projects, Thanksgiving programs, things like that to attend. Um, and then, you know, my mother had doctor's appointments and I had caregiver limitations and I had things that I had to do. And I'm still trying to be a good worker at the same time. And there are just not enough hours to allow for it. Not to mention mentally, I don't think we're supposed to do it like that. I really don't. So I was fortunate to have flexible supervisors. So if something happened, if I had to leave in the middle of the day, I could come back later and complete it. Or I had great teammates where they would pull together and be like, don't worry about it. We'll take care of the last few patients that you had. You stay home. And that was amazing too. But um, flexibility is key because I was a great physical therapist. But I was bound to what I had to do to take care of my family. My supervisors didn't make it interfere with their rating of my performance. They were extremely generous and they were very, very, very understanding. Very understanding. Let's talk about the end of your mom's life. So I do want to talk about that brain study where you did donate your mom's brain to science. And so tell us about the impact of that, because that was a really difficult moment for you. I remember where I was sitting when I completed the application and talked to the person on the telephone. I was, I was on my lunch break and I remember breaking down. I was hysterically crying. I couldn't figure out why. And I went to a friend of mine and she was like, she, she just comforted me. And she was like, Lisa, this is a lot that you're doing. I mean, you think about it, my mom is still living, but I'm making plans for her when she's not. And that hurt every single time. I never, ever got used to that. They have a program down here called the Brain Bank. And I don't know if it's across the nation, but it's an opportunity for you to donate your loved one's brain to science for studying for the purpose of Alzheimer's disease. They give you a full report of, of the autopsy when it's all done you get to actually then confirm truly if, if it was Alzheimer's disease that your loved one had or not. So when I got the autopsy back, I was, <laughs> I was floored by what I was reading. My mom's brain, it weighed 50% less than a normal human brain would. 
that means that much deterioration had occurred. And through the years, I could see that. I could see how her brain was no longer able to control her functions. You know, she had, I mean, she had become incontinent. She had lost the ability to know what to do with a fork. She had lost the ability to know what to do with a straw. She was unable to feed herself. She was unable to walk at a certain point. The motor coordination for all those tasks eventually slowly dried up. And it continued to do so until she was bedridden because she couldn't get out of bed. And then it did so until that she couldn't breathe and that her brain just couldn't figure out the, the, the innate functions that you're born with. It was no longer going to be able to do. And that's when she took her last breath. So I, I had three friends of mine hadn't even hit 45 yet. And they were taking care of their parents with Alzheimer's. So what, what do you want to say to them? What are the words that you want to say to those people taking care of their parents? Gosh, so much, Kristen. It is best to arm yourself with as much support as you can get. You're going to need a support group and you're going to need a caregiver because you cannot do it by yourself. A support group that gives you permission to express whatever you feel like, good, bad, or ugly, that you're able to get it off of your soul because it will eat you up inside. You need physical help as well. You can't do this by yourself. You need a caregiver to at least give you a break. This is a practical one. You should get all of the legal documents you can together before your loved one is unable to do them for themselves. Because it is a lot more difficult to, to get power of attorney and medical power of attorney, all of the legal things that need to be done for you to be able to take care of your loved one, it's going to be a lot more difficult to, for you to do if they're unable to represent themselves. So get all your legal paperwork in order before they are too far gone in a disease. Hospice also had a lot of resources for your mental health also. I had a counselor and of what was uh, they made counseling available to me that I could take advantage of. They had a chaplain that would come and visit if you wanted. Um, I had a nurse that would stop by all the time to check on us and to check on my mom. And in fact, it was a nurse who prompted me to take advantage of their respite program. She saw my little girl and she saw me and she said, you don't spend enough time with your kids, I can tell. And I wasn't insulted by it because she was right. And she said, you need to take advantage of our rest of the program. And I'll show you how to do that so that you can spend some more time with your family. I we'll love take that. care of her. Yeah. She said, we'll take care of her. You get to take care of you and them. And that's what she did. And they were the best. They took care of her just like I did. They really did. For you all out there who are taking care of a loved one, please look into the resources that are available to you also. Hospice was an invaluable one. I would have not been able to do what I did if, it, if they hadn't gotten involved. I tell you that the emotions that you have are all normal. They'll seem abnormal and they'll seem extreme. You'll feel guilty. You're going to be depressed. You're going to be angry. That's another thing that I had, angry. I was very angry with a lot of stuff. I wasn't mad at her, but I was, I was just very sad. I got tired of feeling guilty and sad all the time, but I didn't know I, there was nothing else to replace it with. I just had to deal with it. I was watching my mother die. I, um, I just, she was my child. My mother became more of a child to me than my mom towards the later years. I was taking care of her and she was, more infant-like. And the more her brain deteriorated, the more infant-like she became. So when she died, and I don't know, <laughs> I don't, I, honestly, I don't know if my mourning was because it was my mom or my child or the combination of the two, but it was intense when she died. It was very intense. Um, it was peaceful. I remember being at her bedside and I remember when she took her last breath. It was four in the morning and I remember my caregiver rubbing my back and I remember 
you know, everything goes super fast when all this happens too, right? The funeral home calls, you got to call them. They come pick her. They do a lot of stuff. And they did it all with dignity. I remember that much. And I remember when the, um, the transport, transporter came to take her body to the funeral home. Um, when he drove out the driveway, I felt like something snapped off of my belly button. And when that snapped, my knees just buckled. And then she was gone. That would be the last time that I would ever see her again. So Lisa, tell me what you want people to know. What was your biggest reason for wanting to come on this podcast? I want you to hear my story so you you don't feel alone. And that you know it's not easy. It's not fun. It's not pretty. It doesn't smell good. But it's full of love. It's full of dedication. It's not for everybody. It's to normalize some of the bad stuff so that it doesn't take you down with it. The statistic is 50% of people don't survive the caregiving journey. They don't outlive the person they're taking care of, and I want people to survive them. I was only 35 years old when it all started, and no, that shouldn't have been the end of my life, but I just want, I want someone to know that there is life beyond what you're going through and that it is okay to ask for help and that you need to ask for help and that that it definitely won't be an easy journey you know it's a beautiful story but Kristen you're literally watching your parent die that's not fun it's a surreal experience it really was surreal that's the thing I want people to understand is that you love them, but the reality it is, it's okay to admit that it is hard as hell. And it makes you sad and it makes you angry. And it makes you feel a lot of stuff that you're going to feel guilty for feeling. And it's okay. It's okay because you're human. You're as human as the person that you're trying to take care of. And it's, it's okay. It really is okay. I spent more time battling my guilt of having the feelings that I had than just having the feelings that I had. I mean, <laughs> you you feel guilty that they're living and you're you're they're living and you're guilty. It's 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 not easy. I want to thank you for really sharing your journey with your mom with us. It's so important as you said to let people know that they are not alone. Caregiving is hard. It is hard. And I heard someone say, he was a doctor, and he said that you know he had cancer and that he also was a caretaker. And he said, by far, it was so much harder to be a caretaker than it was to be a patient. Mm-hmm. And so I do want people to, to know that there is help, that you are not alone in this journey, and that there are people all over the world who are going through this very journey that you're going through. So Lisa, thank you. Like from the bottom of my heart, thank you for enabling people to not feel alone. And Kristen, I thank you. I thank you for giving me a voice with this. Not enough people are able to talk about it. Who has a platform like this to discuss it on the plastic couch? I thank you for giving me this opportunity to share my experience with the world. And I also thank you, and you may not know how pivotal you were in my life, but I mean, we've known each other for 30 years, but during that eight, nine, 10 year period, you were my savior because you gave me an outlet to just express myself without judgment, without condescension, without anything. You let me talk. You let me talk raw. You let me talk honest. You let me just be me so that I was able to take those words off of my soul so I could literally function for the next minute and the rest of the day. You don't understand how much of a grace that was always to me. You don't understand how much that meant to me. I mean, I think you literally saved my life. I really, really do. And so I love you and I thank you for that. 
I love you too. And I, I, I think it's my journey in life to never judge the emotions or words that people have on their soul. And I think that this journey can be so isolating and can feel so endless depending on where you are in the journey. So it's so important to have friends and a support group around because those of us who have been touched by it definitely understand it. I agree. I do agree. So Lisa, thank you so much. And thank you for sharing all of this. Thank you, Kristen. So I want to thank everybody for listening to this incredible episode. If this is something that was helpful for you, if you learned anything today, please make sure that you share this podcast with someone else in your life. And also, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please make sure that you rate the podcast and that you comment on it because this is the only way that people get to hear that the Plastic Couch Podcast is out there. So make sure you rate it, make sure you comment on it, share it. I'm Kristen Crockett, and thank you so much for spending your time with the Plastic Couch Podcast.